Good evening, church. Please join me in the scripture reading tonight. It's found in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. It's way at the end of the Bible, very last book. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Lord, thank you for doing our reading. Um, I have a, a, a sad and hopeful announcement that I need to give about our church. And if you'd pull up that, that first slide there, um, our Beloved sister, Cindy Lucas, uh, you know her as a greeter at the door and her husband, James. She went to be with uh, the Lord this past week, and she was having surgery and um, had a cardiac arrest, and she's now with the Lord. And, you know, we, we grieve over that, but we grieve, as the scripture says, not as those who have no hope, but we grieve as those who, who have hope. And the next slide, um, James and, um, and uh, her husband, and we want to be praying for James. And, and Cindy's mom is here, Jackie. She's in the back with James. We want to pray for her as well. Uh, there will be a service this Thursday. And the service will be right here Thursday at 6.30 p.m. If you're able to come, I'd like to invite you to, to come and be here. Probably be about a one-hour service, chance for us to reflect on her life, but also to think about where she is right now and how we'll see her again someday. We you pray with me as we remember the family and prepare our hearts for the word? Will you join with me as, as we pray? Lord, you are the giver of life and the giver of life eternal. And we're mindful that every breath that we take is a gift from you. Every heartbeat that we have is because you've allowed it. And we give you thanks for these lives, but more importantly, for the lives that are yet to come. Lord, we remember Cindy's family, her husband James, her mother, sister and others who have had to say goodbye to Cindy for a period of time until they're reunited with her in heaven. And we pray, Lord, that they would find comfort in their grief, hope in their sorrow, knowing that Cindy is around your throne worshiping you and is able to fully express in person her love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look into your word today, we invite the Holy Spirit now to be our teacher and for him to speak through me words that honor Christ and are true to your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of the world, when they, they think of our beautiful state, Hawaii, they think of it as a, a tropical paradise, a great place for vacation. Those of us who live here think of it as a tropical paradise and a place that's hard to make it on one salary or to pay a mortgage or, or pay school fees. It's a challenge. But most of the world, even those of us who live here, may not be aware that over 
or almost 200 years ago, there was an amazing spiritual revival here in Hawaii, and it resulted in the world's largest Protestant congregation in the world at that time in the 1800s. It was over in Hilo. The attendance was about 10,000 people on a Sunday. Largest church in the world at that time here in Hawaii. In Eva, during that time, on the island of Oahu, their congregation had about 4,000 people at that time. In Honolulu, there were two congregations, one of about 2,500 people and another one of almost 4,000 people. Wailuku, over on Maui, had a congregation of about 2,000, and Lahaina, over on Maui, had a congregation, again, of about 2,000. And like I said, the largest congregation was on Hilo on the Big Island in the 1800s of 10,000 people on a Sunday with a membership of around 13,000 people. And then there's the story of the high priest and the priestesses, priestess of Pele, the volcano god. And the high priest of Pele, the volcano god, was an auspicious man, a feared man. He stood about six foot five inches tall. And his sister, who also was about that tall, was the priestess. And they were feared on the big island where they lived. And unsuspecting travelers to the big island often became unwilling participants in the worship of Pele because Pele required human sacrifices. Well, this priest of Pele, during the revivals of the 1800s on the Big Island, stumbled into one of the revival meetings and got beautifully born again. His sister also went to a revival meeting, got beautifully born again. And the priest said himself that he had been deceived by that which was no God. They got born again, and they were received into church membership in the church in Hilo. That's revival. But how did that revival get started? Well, there was a man from New England by the name of Hiram Bingham who came over in 1820. He led the first missionary team over to the Big Island into what was then called the Sandwich Islands. And then in about 1834, he was followed by a fellow New Englander by the name of Titus Cohen. And under the preaching of Titus Cohen, revival started breaking out. And the revival lasted from 1836 to about 1840. And the effect of the spiritual revival was so great that within a generation, King Kamehameha III, who was the ruler of Hawaii at that time, declared the Hawaiian kingdom a Christian nation. A Christian nation declared by King Kamehameha III. King Kamehameha III officially abolished idolatry in the islands, and he said that the Christian faith was being established in the islands with these words, and I quote King Kamehameha, the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ shall continue to be the established religion of the Hawaiian islands. And then he took as the motto of Hawaii on July 31, 1843, this motto, Ua Mau Kea. Oka'aina Ikapono, the life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. And that motto is still the motto of Hawaii today. Thirty years after the first missionaries came to Hawaii, thirty years later, 
Hawaii was sending out their own missionaries from Hawaii. In 1852, King Kamehameha III sent a missionary team across the South Pacific with a message to all the chiefs of the islands, pleading with them to renounce their idols and worship the one true and living God. That is revival. The largest revival recorded for us in the Old Testament was in about the 8th century B.C. And it occurred in the Middle East near the present-day city of Mosul in northern Iraq. And at that time, the city that experienced a revival had about 120,000 of probably the most wicked people on the whole planet. They would burn skin and crucify people alive when those people didn't immediately comply with their demands. The city at that time in the 8th century B.C. was called Nineveh. It was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was the wicked superpower of the day. It had been in power for about 200 years at this time when there was a spiritual revival in the city of Nineveh. And the entire city of Nineveh, led by their wicked, idol-worshiping king, got revived and came to know the true God and repented, and their lives changed. And the reason most of us have not heard of that revival or have missed it is because when the story is told, we focus on the preacher who brought about the revival because he was reluctant to do it and got swallowed by a big fish that then threw him up on the beach, the story of Jonah. And when we teach the story of Jonah, we focus on Jonah and the fact he didn't want to preach revival, and we miss the revival, the greatest, biggest revival recorded for us in the Old Testament. I'd like to read to you the results of the revival from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3. In the Old Testament, if you go to Matthew and go a couple books to the left, you might find it more quickly if you go that direction. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, notice his short sermon. Mine won't be short, by the way. It won't be this short. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. One sentence sermon. And he didn't say it with a lot of conviction or enthusiasm. He didn't even want to preach it. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. These are pagans. These are the most wicked people on the planet who skinned people alive and left them out in the desert to die. They believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. When something happens on the inside, people should see it on the outside. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. The king, the Assyrian king, calls for repentance of his people. 
And he says, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds, notice something changed in their heart that resulted in change in their deeds, their actions, that they turned from their wicked way, they repented. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Spiritual revival resulting in a change from the inside out. Well, I'd like to mention a third revival, and that's the one we're going to focus on today, that also is missed. The Hawaiian revival is is forgotten about. The revival of Nineveh is missed. The third spiritual revival I'd like to mention today has a sad characteristic, like these other ones, of being missed because we get focused on the details of the story and miss the central theme. And the third spiritual revival is a future revival. And it will be the greatest spiritual revival that has ever occurred in the human race. It's a worldwide revival involving people from every ethnicity, every tribe, every people group, and every language. Turn with me as we continue our series in the book of Revelation. We come to chapter 7, where the spiritual revival of the world is recorded. Revelation chapter 7. And I remind you as we're turning there, the book of Revelation is a book of revealing, not concealing. It was written to reveal truth, not to conceal it. It's a revelation. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. So every chapter, we're going to look for Jesus. What are we being taught about Jesus in these chapters? There's a lot of strange imagery to help us um, know what John was seeing and to describe the future, but we're not to be hung up on the imagery. We're to be focused on Jesus and what's being taught. In Revelation chapter 7, we're going to pick it up at verse 9. And here is the revival. After these things, which we'll look at in a moment, what those things were, I, John, looked, and he's up seeing a vision of heaven, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. That's important, those words. No one could count. A multitude from every nation. The word nation, the Greek word ethnos, means ethnicity. It doesn't mean political boundaries. So every ethnicity and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, that's God's heavenly throne, and the Lamb, that's Jesus who's there with his throne, clothed in white robes. White robes represent the inner character, the righteousness of the people there. And palm branches were in their hands, or using those to worship the Lord. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, and notice what they cry, salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And if you miss those verses and what they're saying, you will miss the understanding of this chapter. This vision he sees is of people who have died from all over the world, and they now are in heaven worshiping their Savior and worshiping Him for giving them salvation. I'd like you to take out your outline, and one thing that we learn about Jesus from this verse 9, it's revealed to us The first thing is that Jesus is a lover 
of all peoples. He is a lover of all peoples. It says here, every ethnicity and all tribes and peoples. That's people groups and tongues. Jesus loves them. He is a lover of all peoples, and we're going to see that he's also a keeper of all promises. He's a keeper of all promises. Unlike you and me, Jesus loves everybody the same, regardless of ethnicity or economic status or where they live or how they live. Jesus loves the deranged, filthy, dirty, smelly, homeless gal on the street as much as he loves your freshly bathed and powdered little girl. Jesus loves the Middle Eastern Bedouin camel driver as much as he loves that impressive uniformed airline pilot. Jesus loves the jihadist suicide bomber just as much as he loves the Medal of Honor hero in America. And I can't say the same thing about me. And you probably can't say the same thing about yourself. It just isn't in us to love everyone the same, but it's in Jesus. He loves everyone the same. It wasn't in the Apostle Peter either. Remember the story? The Apostle Peter is told as a Jew that he's supposed to tell some Gentiles about Jesus Christ. He is given the keys of the kingdom, Jesus said back in Matthew 16, so he could open the kingdom. And he's supposed to open the kingdom of Christ to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And he refuses repeatedly and has a vision over and over again until he's finally convinced he should share Christ with a despised Gentile dog. And notice what Peter says in Acts 10 while he's witnessing to these Gentiles that he formerly couldn't stand. Acts 10, verse 34. 1034, and opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not a one, to show partiality. But in every nation, ethnos, ethnicity, the one who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Jesus is a lover of all peoples, and he wants all peoples to experience his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace, and spend eternity with him and worshiping him. And so he does something about it, And what he does about it is he keeps his promises. He's a keeper of promises. And one of the things that Jesus promised was he, when he was on the earth in Matthew chapter 24, he promised that there would be a worldwide revival to reach every ethnicity, every people group in the world before he returned. He promised that would happen in the future. There'd be a worldwide revival. Notice in Matthew 24, verse 14, what Jesus says. A beautiful verse that's often pulled out of its context in timeline. This is referring to the end of the world before Christ returns, and he says, and the gospel of the kingdom, in Matthew 24, 14, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world, literally the inhabited earth is what that means, for a witness to all the nations. Nations, again, ethnos, ethnicities, not political boundaries. And then the end shall come. 
He says, after every ethnicity on the planet has heard of the kingdom of Christ and the gospel and how to be part of it, then I will return and set up my kingdom. But I'm not going to set up my kingdom until everyone has had a chance to hear and be invited in. I want to show you the timeline that we saw last week. Cover it rather quickly, but I want you to start picturing that, that timeline and you'll see on that timeline that we start with the cross of Christ. Then you have the tomb. We have the, the, the arrow that goes up. That's Christ ascending up into heaven. And he sent the Holy Spirit down. And that started a period of time that you and I live in called the church age. The New Testament calls it the mystery. The church was a mystery because it wasn't talked about in the Old Testament. And a mystery is something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, now revealed in the New. So people try to find the church in the Old Testament. It's not there. It wasn't talked about. It was a mystery. But we come to the New Testament, and it's clearly revealed. And the church period that you and I live in is a period to cause the Jews to become jealous and come back to Christ because they rejected Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is going to come at what's called the rapture, and we're told about this in 1 Thessalonians um, 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and, and in John 14, Jesus talks about it. He's going to take his church up into heaven, his bride up in heaven. He'll reward us. We'll have a big feast with him, a marriage up there. And while we're in heaven, we have a period of time called the seven-year tribulation period on earth. And everybody who enters that period of time is an unbeliever because all the believers have been taken out. Everybody who enters that seven-year period is an unbeliever. And the purpose of that period of time, the main purpose of that is to lead the Jewish nation to a saving relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ so they will call him back and he will come. And Jesus tells us that in Matthew 23, just a page to the left. In Matthew 23, at his first coming, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected by the Jewish nation. They're going to crucify him. So he's not going to set up his kingdom at that time. And it says in verse 37 of Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, these are the Jewish prophets, and stones those who are sent to her. God sends people to, to share the, the good news with the Jews, and they stone them. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you weren't willing. You wouldn't accept me as the Messiah. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me, Jesus, until you, the Jewish nation says, quote from the Old Testament, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus says, I'm not coming back until you repent and call me back. And so the tribulation period is a period of time where the nation of Israel and the whole world experiences God's wrath. If you reject Christ's kindness, we're told in Romans 2, the kindness that leads you to repentance. We're told in Romans 2 that you'll experience his wrath. And the purpose of his wrath, one of the purposes, is to get the attention of people who have rejected his kindness so they will turn to him. And then he starts talking about Matthew 24. And in Matthew chapter 24, his disciples want to know, how are we going to know when you're going to come back? What's the sign? And what is going to be the sign of the end of the age? So in Chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus says this. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And they're referring to the destruction of their temple, which Jesus says, See that temple? It's going to be destroyed. It was being remodeled at that very time. 
hadn't even been finished being remodeled. It was being remodeled. And Jesus said, it's going to be destroyed. Well, within 40 years of Jesus saying that, the temple was destroyed by the general, Titus, the Roman general. Destroyed the temple. Israel was scattered in 70 AD. No nation until 1948 when they were regathered according to the prophecies of the Old Testament. And they asked, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple? What will be the sign of your coming? He will answer that toward the middle of this chapter. And what will be the sign of the end of the age? He answers that question first. So he says, what's the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus answers. And Jesus said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightening, frightening, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's probably World War I and World War II. That's already happened. That's one of the first signs that we're in the last days. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquake. But all these things are the beginnings of birth pains. That isn't the end. How do you know when the end's coming? He tells us, verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. There's a tribulation period and will kill you. Those are the martyrs. And so he's talking about right here in Matthew 24, what we're reading about in Revelation 7. Who are the people from all over the world that are standing before the throne of Jesus Christ in Revelation 7? Well, they're people who have died. When did they die? Well, during the tribulation period. They came to know Christ during the tribulation, and they were martyred. Because if you come to know Christ during the tribulation period, during the time of the world leader, the Antichrist, you're going to be put to death. And he sees, John sees, innumerable people who have been martyred during the tribulation. And you go, well, martyring's not so good, not so good. Well, they made it to heaven. They came to know Jesus Christ. They were martyred because they loved Jesus Christ. And he says, you will be delivered up to tribulation, and they will kill you, and will be hated by all the nations on account of my name. And he goes on to on, and notice what he says, verse 14. The context is the tribulation. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. And notice verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He goes on and on and on. And notice, he says in verse 21, this will be a great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall be. So the context is that seven-year tribulation period. The abomination of desolation we looked at last week is when the Antichrist sets up his throne in the Jewish temple and demands to be worshipped as God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, in Matthew 24, describes the tribulation the same way that John did last week we saw in Revelation chapter 6. Jesus describes false Christ, war, famine, death, martyrs, sun and moon darkened, and the stars falling, the same thing that John talks about in Revelation 6. So if you want to allegorize Revelation 6, you have to allegorize the very words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. And I'd recommend you don't do that. That you take it literally that Jesus is being literal, and he keeps his promises, and he promises that there will be a worldwide revival 
in the world during the tribulation period because Jesus keeps his promises. Paul tells us the same thing. You need to see this verse, Romans chapter 11. Some people were saying, oh, maybe God's done with Israel. They were rebellious. Maybe God's not going to keep his promises. We know he made a promise to, to Abraham. He made a promise to David. And to Abraham, land and seed forever. And David, he made a promise that he would have a king and a kingdom and someone to sit on the throne forever. But maybe God broke his promises to them. And notice what Paul says in Romans 11, verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Mystery, something that was not revealed earlier, now being revealed. Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. That's the nation. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He says, Israel isn't going to repent. You can leave the timeline on. Israel isn't going to repent till all the Gentiles who are going to get saved get saved, and that's the church age, and we get raptured out. And once the rapture comes, he's saying here, then Israel's hardening is going to soften because he says, verse 26, and thus all Israel will be saved. The nation will become a saved nation during the tribulation period. Just as it is written, now he quotes from the Old Testament, Here's a prophecy of Christ's second coming after the nation repents. After all Israel is saved, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, the Jews are enemies right now for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God's going to keep his promise. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God keeps his promise, and his promise to the nation of Israel, right now, they're in rebellion, they're disobedient, God is working with us, he's going to remove us, and then he's going to finish working with the nation of Israel. And now, going back to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Now listen to this, until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. During the tribulation period, people are going to come to know Christ. And he says, I want you to seal some of these people with God's seal to protect them. Verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There are 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from every tribe are going to be sealed. These are people who have come to know Jesus, Messiah, and during the tribulation, they get a seal. They are protected. That's 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the tribulation. And they are the ones that are going to spawn a worldwide revival. And think how brilliant this plan is. Jews speak every single major language in the world and many of the minor languages. Jews are scattered all over the world. Jews already are enculturated in cultures all over the world. Jews are taught 
the Old Testament scriptures from the time they are young, unless they are secular Jews in America. But most Jews know the scriptures, they know languages, they know cultures. They come to know Christ, and all of a sudden, they can witness all over the world without having to go to four years of Bible college, two years of language training, and two years of enculturation in the nation. Well, the tribulation would be over by then. They have to hit the ground running. So God uses 144,000 saved Jews to reach the world and bring about a worldwide revival that is unprecedented. Because remember, when John sees these martyrs from the tribulation in heaven, he says they are such a number that no one can count. Notice verse 11 as we continue. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. You sang that earlier. To be our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? Where do they come from? Who are these people in heaven that you're seeing? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of what? The great tribulation. And they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are tribulation martyrs, people who have come to know Christ. Myriads and myriads of them. You can't even count them. This is the greatest revival in the world. And as you notice, the focus is not on the fact that they suffered and were killed. The focus is that they're worshiping Jesus. We're going to have a memorial service on Thursday for Cindy. If you go to a non-Christian memorial service, they focus on the past. There's no hope. But if you go to a Christian memorial service and you come Thursday, you'll discover... We'll talk about her past, but that's not what we focus on. We focus on the present, that she is in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these martyrs are not bemoaning their past. They're enjoying their presence in the present, they're present in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. They've been saved. For this reason. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun be down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, and shall guide them to springs of water of life, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here's our last, or second point, I guess not, not quite the last one, number two. Life is often hard and cruel. Being martyred is hard and cruel. Life is often hard and cruel. But Jesus is eternally caring and comforting. Jesus is eternally caring and comforting. It says that though they were martyred, Jesus is going to be their shepherd. He's going to take care of them. He's going to guide them. He's wiping away every tear from their eyes. Don't confuse life with Jesus. Life is unfair, hard, and cruel, but Jesus is loving and caring and merciful and comforting. 
and Jesus wants to care for you forever? Life is often hard and cruel. Jesus is eternally caring and comforting. Well, there's one tale, telltale sign that is true in all true revivals. And without that telltale sign, you can be sure there has been no true revival. The sign was true in Hawaii during the revival of the 1800s. It was true in Nineveh during the revival of the 8th century B.C., and it will be true during the Great Tribulation period. And it is true of your life if you've truly been born again and revived. And here it is, number three. Revival always leads to radical change. Revival always leads to radical change. And if there has not been a radical change in your life, you have to doubt whether Jesus has truly come into your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. You've been changed. There's a radical change in who you are. Another amazing revival happened in Belfast, Ireland in the 1920s. The preacher was a man by the name of Nicholson, and he was preaching. And the Belfast shipyard, Harland and Wolf, is the shipyard that built the Titanic. Well, many of the people who worked in the shipyard started getting born again, and there's a radical change in behavior when you truly get born again. And so they started returning the tools that they had stolen over the years from the shipyard. Hammers and drills and wheelbarrows and ladders. In fact, they returned so much stuff that the shipyard had to build a warehouse to house all the returned stolen merchandise, and they named it after the revivalist Nicholson. They call it the Nicholson Shed. Well, people still were getting converted, and people were still returning stolen stuff. So finally, the shipyard owners of Harlan and Wolf said, Stop! We forgive you! Don't return anything more! (laughs) Revival always leads to radical change. There's a famous evangelist by the name of Gypsy Smith, and he'd tell his audiences, Do you want to see revival? And they go, Yes! He says, Okay, well, go home to your bedroom and draw a circle three feet in diameter, and kneel in it and pray for the person in the circle to be revived. (laughs) Because revival starts with a man in the mirror, with a woman in the mirror. It starts with you and me. Would you pray with me? And I'd like to ask you to bow your head and still listen. Open your ears and you can close your eyes if you want. Has there been a radical change in your life? I don't mean do you check the boxes and go to church or open a Bible or pray once in a while. Or, but I mean, has there been a radical change in your heart and in the way you live? Jesus wants to come in, forgive your sins, fill you with himself, his holiness, and give you eternal life. And if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you crave what he has to offer, I beg you even now to cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, please save me. And he will. Lord, revive us. Fill us with your spirit. May there be a change in the way we live because you live in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we close our service? If you've received Christ today or sometime recently, that's the best decision you could ever make. You should tell somebody. We'd love to hear about it.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Amen. Have a great evening. We love you. God bless you. And we'll see you soon.